Welcome back. It's Hit Factory. Just Aaron on this side of the mic today. Carly is taking the week off. But fear not, we have an excellent guest to accompany me today and to take me through a fantastic 90s movie. Uh, It is film writer Veronica Phillips in the Hit Factory. Veronica, welcome. Hi, happy to be here. (laughs) We are very excited to have you. We, I am very excited to have you. I have to start using singular uh, possessive uh, when I when I'm in the room by myself now, I never will. It'll never feel comfortable for me. <laughs> uh, but yes, I am very thrilled to have you. I feel like this has been a long time coming. Very very glad to get you finally on the show. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about Danny Boyle's 1996 film Train Spotting, arguably one of the defining works of the 1990s and absolutely for UK cinema in the 90s, one of the biggest of all time. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm curious when we start out, Veronica, why train spotting? What drew you to this movie? Because you brought it to us. Uh, and I, I just want to know what your history is with it, how it's evolved, and uh, and what train spotting means to you. Yeah. So um, I chose it mainly because I feel like I had the most to say about it. Uh, I first watched it like 10, 11 years ago for the first time when I was 13 or 14. Um, and it's been in my top three since then. Uh I kind of, when I first watched it, it was when I was kind of trying to like become someone who knew things about film, like become a cinephile in like (laughs) that kind of like half-hearted 14-year-old way where you're like basing it off of what like the cooler kids in school are watching and stuff like that, not based off of anything actually meaningful. It's like you're eating your Tarantino and your, uh, you know, your uh, Scorsese or whatever. Um, (laughs) I felt like this one, (laughs) I enjoyed all of those, but I was so like struck by this one instantly um like within the first two minutes to be honest uh I felt like it was so raw and real and kind of had this grittiness uh to it um but it was still so fun to watch it didn't feel like it was like so heavy-handed in its messaging it wasn't trying to teach me a lesson it wasn't trying to uh it wasn't really self-serving to some kind of like singular director's vision it just was like telling a story well um about a really tragic uh situation and a kind of really difficult uh, heavy, like ethically murky uh, life uh, without it being so tragic and so kind of on the nose, which I thought was really cool. Um, and now I've been watching it probably once or twice a year for like 10 years because I just get the itch every <laughs> few months. Um, wow. And yeah, I don't know why, but it like soothes me now at this point. I don't know if I've just watched it so many times that I just like put it on if I don't know what's put on. Um, and now uh, as I'm kind of the lead character's ages, uh, kind of in this kind of mid-20s flux. I just kind of like the existential sort of exploration of it all, of kind of all of these decisions kind of lay before you. Uh, And you're kind of making decisions of like, what am I going to do with this big, long life ahead of me? Like, I've made it this far, even making really shitty choices. (laughs) I seem to continue bouncing back because I'm young, maybe, or lucky. Uh, And I don't know, I just love how it handles that theme in kind of the most extreme way possible. I have a very similar story with this one. Um, I also came to it in my early teenage years. I think I was about the same age, 14 or 15. And it was absolutely a movie uh, that I was watching to try to get in with the cinephile crowd that I was hanging out with, like (laughs) all of the movie lovers, uh, because it, it managed to be a film that I think could secure my bona fides so to speak and like you know make me make me look pretty cool um but also a movie that wasn't boring as shit to watch yeah and it's like (laughs) it's like gnarly so it's like you went through something like you've done this rite of passage of this pretty like 
nasty movie. Uh, but yeah, it's not the most boring or dense thing in the world. Or I didn't feel like messaging was flying over my head where I was like, I don't know what the fuck this movie is talking about, but I'm supposed to get it. So yeah. <laughs> uh, what is your take on Danny Boyle? Are you a fan of his... I am for the most part. I haven't seen his entire canon. I actually haven't seen Dog Millionaire, which is the one that I think is the most controversial and usually the kind of turning point on where people have a big bump with him, understandably. (laughs) Um, So I kind of shy away from it in the sense that I think I know how I'm going to feel. I will say what I like the works of his that I love, which would be this Sunshine, 28 Days Later. I'm a big fan of Shallow Grave. Um, I love and I think it's like pretty fantastic. the work he can do in sense of just kind of he makes the movie he wants to make and it can often be like an entirely unexpected genre uh, and he tends to execute it pretty well when he does on the flip side he can really have some stinkers <laughs> and that when that yes. kind of directorial vision doesn't come across and i would say there's that i loathe this one but there's that dumb christmas movie one called like millions or something oh uh, yes uh children's movie for sure yeah which is and it's brutal and it's like super (laughs) like weird like just like white savior weirdness um and i wasn't huge on yesterday either i haven't thought about it once since i left the theater like years ago so i would say i always think of him as like i love him i love his tv show trust too Mm -hmm. uh so like i always think of him knee-jerk reaction like i love his stuff and then there are some really big asterisks to that of like not just i didn't like it i thought it was like bad (laughs) (laughs) that's fair i you know i'm i'm very much i I find him a mixed bag to be sure um i as i already mentioned really loved train spotting uh 28 days later is one that i very much took to when i was younger Mm -hmm. as well sunshine i just watched again recently holds up um but uh, as he started to explore a little bit more different territory and go into different avenues yeah. after Slumdog Millionaire, I think it's definitely been a little bit more hit or miss for me. I am actually a, a pretty big fan of his Steve Jobs movie, which was surprising yeah, to me. I haven't seen it. Uh, coming from someone like Danny Boyle, who's like a very uh, pronounced visual stylist doing a, a Sorkin script. Uh, yeah, yeah didn't seem to me like a recipe for great things but i also thought that about the social network before i saw it and uh and it ended up working out working out markedly well i think it's i think it's one of his better films in the in the 2000s for sure choose life choose a job choose a career choose a family choose a big television you're a quiet sensitive type a little bit crazy a little bit bad Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays, and dental insurance. Do you see the beast? Have you got it in your sights? Clear enough, Mitch Moneypenny. <laughs> Choose sitting on that couch watching mind-numbing, spirit-crushing game shows, stuffing junk food into your mouth. Ben's a psycho, man. He's a mate. So what can you do? What are you two talking about? Football! What are you talking about? Shopping. What's on the menu this evening, sir? The dodgiest scam in a lifetime of dodgy scams. So this 
film is also an adaptation of a an Irving Welsh novel of the same name and is adapted by writer John Hodge. As I understand mm-hmm. it, uh, the Irving Welsh novel is actually sort of a, a compendium of short stories about these characters who interact with each other around Edinburgh in the 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, I suppose. Um, so certainly an undertaking trying to make this into a comprehensive and cohesive sort of story um i think they succeed markedly i think it's one of those movies that that feels uh very driven it feels very logical in terms of its its uh front to back beginning to end um i'm just impressed with the kineticism of it i I often like to kind of say that this one is uh, a heroin movie that is uh really sort of driven by cocaine and ecstasy it's it's definitely not the kind of heroin movie you're used to seeing Yes, it's, um, it's extremely, I've used this word a few times, but fun, uh, which seems like such a an oxymoron for a, uh, a movie about like, suffering heroin addicts, not just people kind of dabbling in the the drug scene, but like losing, like, everything over it. Um, And I remember I've read that um, Danny Boyle and John Hodge, uh, really, like when they were kind of working through what they wanted the film to look like, they were really scared of making it look like, I think they used something like a, uh, like a public service ad or something. And they were like, that is like our number one goal. Like, even if it ends up looking more fun because of it, we're not going to make this look like dare program Mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, And I just think it strikes this really magical balance of like, of course, when you watch it, you're not like, I want to live this life. Like this seems fun. And I want, and you don't feel that way, but there is this like really exciting appeal to it where it's like, I wouldn't want to live this life. I might want to, hang out with these guys for a night I might want to go to the clubs that they're going to there is this like pulse to it that is so alive in reading and and listening to interviews with Danny Boyle and with Irvin Welsh it seems like they were both aligned in terms of their desire to make a movie that uh, didn't necessarily glorify drug culture but Mm -hmm. showed the appeal of drug culture and uh, I think that was first and foremost what Welsh uh felt was right about allowing Hodge, Danny Boyle, and their producer, Andrew McDonald, to make the movie as opposed to someone else who wanted to make kind of a more dire, more urgent, earnest kind of drug movie. Um, And for Danny Boyle, too, he sort of expresses that it's a way for him, as he views it, to approach characters who are sort of on the periphery of society in a way that has much less judgment and, and more nuance to it than we often give that a, a movie that sort of just beat beat up the downtrodden uh, <laughs> yeah. would be kind of like doing a disservice to them and just being just kind of being brutal and and in a way sort of like a, a morality story. And in this, he was really trying to seek out an opportunity to give them more textures, give them more kind of character depth and approach mm-hmm. things with uh, with a level of non-judgment and and kind of relishing in, in these these characters that we have. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, one of the big things that I, I would love to talk about and that always kind of draws me into the film is this, I think that's so captured in this kind of amazing, like opening two minutes, uh, where we get this voiceover. So we're kind of centered in Renton's perspective, but um, it's cut between kind of their day to day lives and they're at a football or a soccer match. Uh, and each character during the game um like does something uh, like either like a shitty play like sick boy trips somebody and spud misses um like he's a shit goalie like he completely misses everything (laughs) um and we're kind of given these intros to these people 
um, and their life that like immediately gives them agency and doesn't kind of see them as these like victims who are like their main center point of life is that they're struggling with addiction and struggling to kind of get by. Uh, and instead kind of shows them as like, they're kind of pricks and they're kind of full-fledged people immediately. And then we get into the matter of like, they're all choosing to do heroin and like, this is this is kind of their big center point and what they do with their life. And then everyone kind of gathers from the football game in Mother Superior's Den, which is this kind of dingy uh, den. And you kind of see what connects them all. And that moment too is very intimate. Everybody is touching. There's that uh, insane, like sexy moment when Sick Boy helps Allison shoot up and it's like incredibly loaded um and they just seem like full people right away in two minutes and you get their whole story and their whole point right away so that everything that goes from there can kind of chug along at a a less kind of structurally severe uh rate and more at kind of a character-based rate which i love absolutely let's talk about those those opening moments a little bit more yeah. Uh, yeah. it starts sort of in meteor res we see uh both spud and you and McGregor's character uh, Renton uh, running from, I believe, police at this point. They're being they're being pursued by shopkeepers, police, whoever it is that they've just robbed. Uh, and and there's this very famous uh, opening sort of voiceover where uh, McGregor's character is uh, sort of listing off a lot of the commodities and experiences of life in the 90s right saying choose life choose a big fucking television choose i i don't even remember everything he says but but he's he's listing off kind of these appeals of regular society yeah and ends it by saying i choose not to choose life i choose something else and the reasons there are no reasons who needs reasons when you've got heroin <laughs> which is so stunning like talk about getting your theme across immediately like it's just like this incredible encapsulation and what I love though about that moment is that um I feel like there's kind of this divide of this choose life so he's kind of this choose life and he's choosing heroin he's choosing to kind of take on this nihilistic approach and it's this very young person's game of like trying to politicize your decisions in life when they're ultimately just decisions in life um, and sure, it seems like a rational enough take maybe for someone to be like, I'm choosing to opt out of all of that, except that he's looking at like an infant on the floor of this uh, den. Like there is a baby at risk in the middle of this group um, that instantly kind of goes against what he's trying to posit, that this is a personal decision and it's not affecting anybody. But if this group is kind of living like this, it starts to kind of bleed out to like, literal children in this case <laughs> or your families or whoever um and it's positing his obviously very clear addiction as it shows throughout the movie he kind of cycles constantly back in and back out uh it shows that he's not really choosing it at all like this has a hold over him but again it's this kind of idea of making it seem like a personal decision and a political decision which i think is kind of an incredibly youthful move in itself to try and make everything rationalized which is kind of uh, I feel like every character's MO is especially sick boy sick boy always has this like defining theory of life is what Renton puts it and yes. they're always useless <laughs> they're that you're good and then you're not good anymore <laughs> like his, his it, big it, he, he literally just describes uh old age and, yes! and you know kind of falling yes! out of touch with coolness is what he yes, describes. exactly <laughs> but it's they're like weird protective shield to justify uh, not even living not even as a judgment call but just like their lives uh they need their like lives to mean something within that context which is so i don't know it feels it feels like so young person's game 
it really does. Um, and, and maybe it's, uh, I guess my, my approach to this kind of my viewpoint on, on them has, uh, evolved over time, you know, like now being, I, I think probably older now than the characters are in the film. Uh, I certainly have a different sense of, of what that kind of politicization of these decisions means, uh, as opposed to when I was like 15 and had this part of my life ahead of me. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, but I do really like this explanation, kind of muddied as it is, you know, and it, it definitely has kind of a, a 90 sensibility to it, um, as opposed to a 2022 one, uh, because that's when it was made. Yeah. Uh, but there is this interesting kind of current running through it uh, that approaches addiction and sees addiction as a choice that is made as some sort of rebellion against the status quo, which is an interesting touch point, I think, and something that I, you know, is uh, really and truly, I think, part of uh, what perpetuates addiction, at least from like a psychological perspective. There is this sort of like, uh, you know, conscious othering that uh, that I feel addiction brings um, that is deliberate, right? That you want to do something that feels like you are stepping out of and removing yourself and, and opting away from uh, the status quo, from these from these parts yes, of life that absolutely. feel to you uh, kind of distant, uh, unfulfilling, corroded by whatever. And uh, and I, I really like that this film does that without it becoming the focal point. I, I really like that texture that it adds. Yeah, like I, it does feel like, especially um, for Renton, especially considering the opening and closing monologues, I would say, is that he sees this kind of divide as like, I can either be cool, consciously othered, I can prove that I'm different than my parents, I can prove that I'm different uh, than the world around me, this kind of like, the word that comes to mind is that like Reddit sheeple idea of like, <laughs> I'm doing something actively different. Um, but then he sees the only other alternative as this complete kind of keeping up with the Joneses where like he's gonna he's against that at the beginning and then at the end he's promising that he's going to get a washing machine and like this house um and I just find that divide so fascinating because those are the only two narratives he's kind of been fed where he can stay with this kind of ragtag group of buddies who are either active users um and just embracing it or in the case of I would say Begbie psychopaths I don't know what how you describe the non-users <laughs> of the group um or, you know, he's been fed that the only other alternative is to buy totally into kind of consumerism and capitalism and the kind of the myth of the nuclear family, when what Renton probably needs is some health resources of which the movie kind of points out is lacking, mm -hmm. uh, and probably some introspection on why he's kind of such a prick uh, beyond, even, <laughs> beyond yes. even his habits, um, and like some better friends. But those are not the narratives he's been offered. Like he's either like going to become his parents and like run a house and kind of survive off of what his mom does, which is oxys, he kind of mentions in passing and trying to keep up appearances or given entirely, uh, which the idea that those are your only two options is ridiculous. But I think when you're so caught in those narratives, especially as a young person, it's like, okay, it's one or the other. Let's talk a little bit more about Mark Renton, our protagonist, yeah. and the actor who portrays him, Ewan McGregor. Uh, really his sort of breakout role and the one that kind of like defined him moving forward. It's, it's funny to think that like three years after this, he's going to be in a star Wars movie. <laughs> I know uh, that's insane. Trajectory yeah. wise. That is such a shift. It, it really is. Um, but he's phenomenal here. He does terrific work. Um, he's clearly put in a lot of effort and energy into kind of uh, embodying the role. I understand that he, 
dropped something like 30, 35 pounds for it. He's impossibly skinny, head shaved. He's got this like very pale, like, I mean, he is the definition, I think, of heroin chic, the tight t-shirts, the the emaciated body, but still kind of like clearly beautiful if he like put a little bit of weight on, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, so attractive. And I think that's part of this. I think in general, uh, they're so well casted in the sense that they look like they live the lives they do. But they are like beautiful in their youth and their like stupid youthful fashion decisions of like their buzzed heads and their bleached blonde look and like all of that like works so much to the film's advantage because there's an appeal to them. Um, but his performance is just insane. It's so good and it, it allows for what I love about this movie kind of as as drug films go is it's not very like, hey man, what's happening? Uh, it relies a lot on you buying into kind of the subjectivity that Ian McGregor's performance feeds and kind of the voiceover feeds so they don't have to kind of force you into the world through kind of tacky effects or any sort of majorly on the nose stylistic moves except for the super tasteful ones in my opinion like the climbing through the toilet and the the rug falling down from underneath him when he overdoses everything is very tangible and I think that's because it's just so well performed by everybody that you feel very immersed in the space uh, and in their lives without necessarily needing to be so heavy-handed on like this is so hard and they're so they're really going through it yeah yeah, I understand that uh, Boyle asked McGregor to channel specifically Michael Caine in Alfie and uh, Malcolm <laughs> McDowell in A Clockwork Orange as sort of these oh like lovable, gosh. lovable sociopaths. Um, I, and I, I, I can see the similarities for certain. It certainly feels like he is uh, embodying this character who we sympathize with wholly. Um, but he is, as you mentioned, someone who probably would benefit from a little bit of reflection and an acknowledgement that he is uh, kind of a selfish prick throughout a lot of the film. Yeah. Uh, what I really like about Renton is he kind of sees himself as this kind of, uh, I think he sees himself as better than his friends, morally more sound or at least uh, stronger in his resolve when he mm-hmm. quits, even though he quits and restarts over and over again. I think he feels like his justifications are better justifications for starting back up. Um, and I think he's kind of, he kind of has this love hate relationship and this strange intimacy with stick sick boy. And I think it's because, uh, he often mirrors each other and sick boy is just kind of blatantly a prick. Uh, and he, I think maybe enjoys life more because of it. He tends to get laid more. He tends to have more fun. He doesn't tend to have the kind of moral panics that Renton kind of wakes up into once every few scenes in this movie, to be honest, that seem to kind of plague Renton. Um, <laughs> But so Renton first quits uh, and then he says, which I love, is like he's dreading uh, spending time with his friends in a full state of consciousness, which is just such a fantastic like <laughs> encapsulation of their whole deal. Uh, and Sick Boy has quit too. And that pisses Renton off because um, he feels like Sick Boy is just trying to prove a point. But I think that Renton is just kind of trying to prove a point as well. He makes such a big fuss whenever he kind of goes to quit. Um, and then at the end, when he chooses to steal the money, um, he sick boy comes and sits down at the table when they're all kind of celebrating having this deal having gone successfully and sick boy leaves comes back and says something along the lines of i would have taken it um and that almost feels like it spurs renton to commit because renton considers it before when everyone leaves the table and he's just there with spud in the money that they should just take it and run um but i think he just doesn't uh, he wants to be able to posture himself as a better person um which 
I find so interesting that there's this desire for kind of like a moral hierarchy in their generally bad behavior because because they fuck other people over all the time. Mm -hmm. But something about this idea of there being honor with your, in your friend group, I think along the lines of what you were saying of there being this kind of idea of like consciously othered and they've made this effort to be on the fringes of society and commit to that, even if they started out kind of on the fringes, um, that there's this idea that there should be an ethical code that they all choose to ignore anyways and they're constantly hurting each other physically emotionally they're fucking each other over and that's from the very beginning um but there's this fantasy that you can do that and feel like a better person if you don't admit to it on Renton's part which is like almost worse behavior yeah like he's so rude and like <laughs> so he doesn't care about anybody in that sense and you wonder when he leaves Spud that money at the very end is it because he cares about Spud so much or is it because Spud saw like, you know, I, it's hard to say. Yeah. It almost kind of feels like he's buying him off in a way, right. To assuage yeah. his guilt rather than to reward Spud for being a friend or for, you know, being guileless or anything like that. Exactly. And he's not letting them in on his big plan to get clean and feel better. Uh, like that's all his own. And he just wants this clean break, which is fair enough. If it's not for the fact that he kind of fucked them over the same amount that they fucked him over. Yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of dynamic at play with Renton specifically. Uh, there is, in all of his behaviors and that kind of feigning of moral superiority, kind of a betrayal of the fact that he uh, is, in some ways, still hanging in the balance between choosing life, quote unquote, and choosing heroin, you know, that he Absolutely. has bought in entirely, as you've mentioned, into this idea of... I say the American dream. It's not. It's prosperity, right, under sort of like a neoliberal order because it's it's very similar uh, in terms of its ethos across the pond as well. Uh, and it feels like he's internalized that to the point that he considers his situation impermanent in terms of his like heroin use and feels like maybe he can have it both ways. He can indulge. He can enjoy this. Uh, he can embrace the culture of it and sort of the the benefits and the pleasures of it. And then remove himself from it and step away when he's ready to and become sort of the the person that he intends to be with all of the trappings of of modern existence. And it it's interesting because the other characters don't seem to have that. They seem to more readily kind of own their predicament or their position and just sort of accept that they are the way they are. As you mentioned, like Sick Boy doesn't have this conflict at all. Sick Boy is just kind of like... Uh, a handsome like junkie bastard and is like totally <laughs> fine with that being the case absolutely i think too there's this not just with sick boy but with the whole group um a begby i think like is really coming to mind with this concept of he's a little bit older mm -hmm. um and he does not use but he is committed to a life of i don't even know how to totally describe it he's a active, psychopath really. active like... violence like like he like talk about like clockwork orange and everything like he is like in to like ultra violence and then creating more chaos from that ultra violence um that kind of opening bit where they're all at the bar and he throws the glass over so it will land on someone and then comes down and says no one's leaving until we figure out who glassed this woman to get another fight going is yeah. so gorgeous so brilliant like some of my favorite characterization works so so rapidly and his friends kind of standing back and watching. But again, it's this commitment to like, I am not going to be part of this social order. 
In fact, I'm going to create an actively worse, more chaotic situation. Um, <laughs> but in some ways, that embracing is sometimes even a bit more palatable than Renton's, which is so caught up, as you said, in this, not even in living a better life, but living a more capitalistically consumer-friendly life. So much of his dream um, is owning items and like having something to signal that he feels better, even though he tries that in the middle of the movie. He moves to London and he mm -hmm. kind of plays pretend at adulthood in like these kind of ill-fitting suits, but he still has his earrings and he has this apartment, but it's still kind of gross. And his life encroaches like physically and literally intangibly by his friends coming um, and taking over and ruining for him. Um, but then by the end of the movie, this is like a few weeks have passed and he feels like, no, this time will actually be different and I'm actually going to move to London and this time it will feel or move wherever and this time it will feel more meaningful based on nothing. Yeah, it, it ultimately feels kind of Sisyphean. <laughs> it's, it, it feels really like, like a rejection of the old one more time, this time with a little bit more money in his pocket. And there is really no guarantee by the end of the movie that this is going to stick this time around. And you uh, don't feel that. I don't think. No. And and this is an interesting thing. I've read criticisms of this movie as uh, sort of like a neoliberal kind of propaganda that, you know, it's it's about people rejecting the system. It doesn't interrogate why they would do that. And then comes full circle with rent and sort of uh, re-accepting and, and initiating his sort of uh, entry into this into this order. But to me, that ending rings very hollow. It, it feels like a, a man who is very deluded by his perception yes. of what life can be and what it offers. And uh, and it ends with him fucking over, you know, his his three closest mates at the end, too. It, it yes. is not a, a pretty or a happy ending by any sense. No. And the dream that he's reaching for, he hasn't even seen. What I love is that this the space that they live in. It's a myth. Like the images that he has in his mind are ones he's never even seen. His family home isn't very functional or pretty um he's never really been inside a functional or pretty places or pretty place he works within kind of like stealing from old folks homes and grungy sort of hospitals or like where he gets his most possible care while his friends have to go to jail um and he leaves like these visions he has are because he's come into this money uh, and he's fucked his friends over and he's committing but it's not actually so much money it's not a livable amount that is going to be able to change his life um, and he's not suddenly not addicted and he's not suddenly free from kind of all of the social implications and kind of the the world working against him. And his stigmas are not gone all of a sudden. He can't move away from those things. And we've watched him experience that over and over and over again for this hour and a half. All he does is try and quit and then get back on heroin in, under a new different circumstance. And the idea that whatever it is, 12 grand is going to be this ticket to not being addicted anymore and his dream life even though he has no idea how to even go about that he's been actively avoiding trying to be successful in government mandated job interviews for years um is a myth and i think it's it's sad and i don't think it's it's brenton's fault necessarily either i think that the system offers that kind of vision with no way of going about getting it even if you're feeling as excited as renton is briefly about it at the end you know we are supposed to see this kind of like happy vision of his future, uh, also free of heroin, because he he does get clean at a certain point in the movie. You know, he kind of there's a, a really fantastic scene uh, where he quits cold turkey 
yeah. and is uh, you know set to uh, "Dark and Long" by Underworld. We'll talk a little bit more about the entire soundtrack mm-hmm. later, I promise. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, you know, kind of pulsing techno club beat uh, underlying all of these awful, horrible visions and his cold sweats and his vomiting and being visited by these kind of ghosts of all of his different friends and characters. And uh, also, you know, baby Dawn, who at this point is, is no longer alive because of their, their addiction. And uh, so we see him, you know, kind of like kick the stuff, but then at the end he has shot up once in order to test the product for their big deal. Uh, and also made uh, a point to promise himself one more, quote, last hit uh, when they're on the bus headed back to Edinburgh from from London, I think, uh, or vice versa. And he sort of mentions, he says, there are last hits and then there are last hits. Which one is this going to be? Um, so we're left with also this kind of question of whether or not he's really uh, sober and he's like really kicked, kicked the stuff this time. Like we don't have any definitive reason to believe that he's put all of this stuff behind him and can move forward in any way whatsoever. I know. And he's decided that he's, he's kicked it less than probably 24 hours after his quote unquote last hit, whatever meaning that is. (laughs) And now he has a ton of money and that's what they briefly touch on in the sequel, not to get too into the weeds, but Spud continues uh, using and Mm -hmm. Renton kind of asks you know, I gave you these resources. Why did you do that? And Spud is essentially like, what What else did you think I was going to do with money? Like, I'm an active junkie and we all were. Um, and there's no way, again, it's another example from the second one of, of Spud kind of being, and all of his friends, kind of being the more strangely rational or reasonable people in the sense of understanding where they're standing in the world of like, it's simply not that simple to dig yourself out of it. So if you're going to commit to it, commit to it. Whereas Renton, as we said before, is more along the lines of I can kind of put my toe in the water and then step back and then commit to this different life. And then if I need to use for whatever the justification is, I will. Never again, Swanee, I'm off the skag. Are you serious? Yeah, no more, I'm finished with that shite. Well, that's up to you, man. Gonna do it right this time, gonna get it sorted out, get off it for good. I sure I've heard that one before. The sick boy method. Oh, that really worked for him, eh? Well, he's always been lacking in moral fibre. He knows a lot about Sean Connery. That's hardly a substitute. You'll need one more hit? No, I don't think so. For the long night that lies ahead? Of course I'd have another shot. After all, I had work to do. Talking more about that dynamic between either accepting kind of your lot and not... We've we've already mentioned a couple times the character Sick Boy, um, played Mm -hmm. by... Uh, ultimate 90s guy, Johnny Lee Miller, <laughs> yeah. uh, who was just coming to this film off of the success of Hackers, when he, which he starred in opposite Angelina Jolie. Um, and I, I I love Sick Boy in this movie. I think that, that Johnny Lee Miller imbues him with such this uh, sense of kind of silliness and earnesty. Like even just his sort of like physical mannerisms make me laugh in this movie. Yes. And he's like so genuinely some 20 something guy he just loves james bond he loves to talk about it all the time he loves girls he loves and he's so self-centered like he just thinks he rocks like and he dresses like it and he moves around like it and he communicates with his friends like it and there's no ever sign of that shifting except for the massive grief of his losing his child but that only really hardens him i find Mm -hmm. it doesn't make him any less 
his deal, which is that he's committed to being like this. And I think he finds it kind of cool, his life. I don't think he's adverse to being perceived the way he's perceived. Yeah, the the death of baby Don, you know, they say changes something in him. But what it really feels like is it just steals his resolve as to like his actual position as not a good person. Uh, yes, yes. And uh, I, I love the the recurring kind of bit of his obsession with Sean Connery. Uh, it's it, it also leads to one of my favorite exchanges between uh, Ewan McGregor and uh, their dealer. They call him Mother Superior, played expertly by the great Peter Mullen, uh, who I love. I love him. And, you know, I think uh, he uh, tells him, mentions to Renton, uh, you know, Sick Boy, I think, is also trying to boot this or whatever. And Renton says he's lacking in moral fiber. <laughs> And uh, Peter Mullen says he knows a lot about Sean Connery and James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> Renton says that's hardly a substitute, <laughs> uh, which is a wonderful uh, just sort of back and forth one liner. I, I absolutely adore. Uh, but I think it speaks to kind of why Sick Boy feels so kind of sturdy in his in his acceptance of who he is as a person. So frequently when he's talking about Connery, he's talking about Bond. He's really talking about sort of the exemplification of the ideal Scotsman, right? About like masculinity yes. that sort of is is absent their existence. He even, I think, at one point mentions uh, that because of his on-screen conquest with people like Ursula Andress, that he uh, is sort of rubbing in their faces how superior he is to them as men and as Scotsmen. To me, that shows just how kind of bottom of the barrel he perceives his existence and his friend's existences, that there is no way they'll ever be a Sean Connery, uh, that this is the ideal, but that that's not anything we will ever achieve. So just enjoy what we have and what we can. Yes, absolutely. And that he kind of takes this pleasure in accepting that. And then he kind of plays at being Sean Connery, even visually sometimes he dresses up and he has that ridiculous and so funny and awesome uh fake bottomed out shoe where he can keep his needle which yes. is <laughs> atrocious uh and so funny um and he's kind of comfortable with that he's like we're never gonna be him but we can kind of play at him and i'm allowed to kind of have my ridiculous value system and my friends are not going to drop me no matter what um and renton kind of again as this strange flip kind of feels like, fuck it, we're too far in and I should be sad about it. Uh, down to the fact that he feels like he should be sad he's even Scottish because he's been colonized by the English and they're just, he says something like they're just wankers and it's worse because we've been colonized by wankers. Yes. And he kind of sees it as like, we have to commit to feeling miserable where we are. This idea of sick boy lacking in moral fiber being like, it is what it is and I'm going to party is this kind of signal of failing to Renton and Renton's like, well, I'm okay. I'm better off and morally superior because I can feel badly about where I'm at, even <laughs> nationally. <laughs> yeah. I'm I have the self-awareness to kind of prove something. Yeah, that that scene where they are being forced to go on a hike by Tommy. <laughs> it it, it is, is the most like thrilling 25-year-old <laughs> moment ever in the film of just the shock and horror of like, I don't want to be outside. I want to continue my endless bender. 
And like, this is like a useless task. I'm not getting high from this. I'm not getting money from this. I'm not hanging out with my friends, like in the way I like. So why, like, why are we doing this? There's even a moment where uh, Ewan Bremner as Spud says, this is unnatural. (laughs) (laughs) While they're literally surrounded by gorgeous nature and walking around in it. (laughs) It's the only pretty part of the movie. Otherwise, they're just in this like you know, these shitty hole in the walls and everything and their and their homes that they're constantly wrecking. It's like the only really gorgeous landscape and they're miserable, like maybe the most miserable they are in the movie. I also love though that they kind of are willing to indulge Tommy in this little expedition. And one of the things that I do love about this film in general is this tendency. They say it a few times, one of their kind of blanket permissions for all of the insanity of everybody is that he's a mate. Um, And there's this idea that we've been friends for long enough that we're committed to each other forever, because I think it's better probably than feeling lonely or having to kind of sit with yourself. And if everyone is acting the way you're acting, there's some comfort in that, I think. Um, But they justify he's a mate for like Begbie's brutal violence on strangers. It's like, (laughs) well, what are you going to do? Like, it is. I mean, the, the, contrast there in the dynamic between specifically the the three addicts spud sick boy and uh renton contrasted with begbie who's a psychopath but then you also have this character who is for all intents and purposes like kind of the innocent of the group right and sort of the one that has like has it the most together he's in a relationship he uh you know has a job he's relatively handsome he like Mm -hmm. is confident in himself he doesn't use um, and, and the trajectory of Tommy over the course of the movie, I think is, uh, one of the films like most brutal through lines. Um, I, how, how can it not be, you know, just that he, yeah. uh, you know, loses his relationship with Lizzie through Renton's actions, by the well, way. Well, this is, that's the thing is there's this like notion of he's a mate, he's a mate to justify people, but they're horrible friends. Like terrible friends. They, there's that that like incredibly invasive move on Renton's Renton's part of stealing their sex tape and then not telling them about that. And then the brutal part is when they're watching it, they're so bored. That's the part that always kills me too. They do this like (laughs) crazy invasive betrayal and take Lizzie and Tommy's sex tape, uh, sick boy and Renton. And then they kind of watch it half-heartedly and don't bother to think about giving it back or letting him know that they were fucking with him. And it's like this domino effect that they continue feeding into. Like Renton is the first one to let him try heroin um and i do find this kind of interesting parallel between tommy uh and baby dawn as they kind of feel like the knee-jerk reaction when people talk about especially hiv and aids epidemic but also addiction in the sense of this like innocent lives idea where we can kind of uh socially justify like this one's morally wrong but someone like brenton and sick boy they chose to do it and this is their problem but it's so sad this guy had big chances or it's so sad you know, this was a baby, um, which is, of course, true. But it, but mm-hmm. it's this I think it really highlights this idea of like this this ranking system of um, who's kind of innocent and who's not uh, in epidemics like that. Uh, again, without being heavy handed, though, and being like huge political messaging, it just kind of points out that like Brenton, sick boy and Spud also get fucked over by the system all the time. and also probably wouldn't want to be living like this. Um, but the world is going to focus instead on of course, the baby, that one is obvious and justified. Yes. <laughs> but but, Tom, but Tommy's kind of this difficult middle ground of like, that's way more sad because, you know, he started off so such like so appealing to us. Yeah. And it also, I, in an interesting way, I think emphasizes yet another moral failing of uh, of Renton, of McGregor's yes. character, 
in the sense that not just that he's, you know, a bad person and, and, you know, that he creates this domino effect by stealing a sex tape and then letting Tommy try heroin and, and, you know, kind of resulting in his eventual decline and uh, his contracting of, of HIV and, you know, Mm -hmm. ultimately dying. But I think that there's another thing here that, you know, in Tommy's case, we see that fall happen so rapidly and so quickly, not just because of his diagnosis, but also because it seems that he is completely lacking in any sort of uh, safety net or or support system outside of these terrible people who are his friends. Yes. Whereas Renton, his kind of ability throughout the movie, as we see, to quit when he when he is able to uh is a result of the relative level of comfort that he is in all the time that he lives with his parents that his parents like care for him and and that he has this kind of advantage of sort of a middle class life that he can retreat back into whenever the realities of like the the addiction and the poverty that it brings gets too real for him and that kind of like ability to to go back and forth and sort of live in this sort of liminal space between the two uh, I think to me reflects, I don't think there's any uh, like a necessary judgment in the movie about it, but to me it, it just exemplifies further the sort of sociopathy, right? This like denial of that privilege over other people who struggle with this. Yes. And especially, it's especially striking when he gets tested and he, he is not HIV positive. He, he He's negative. Like he somehow avoids it and kind of touches on the fact that that is so miraculous mm-hmm. when they're out at bingo uh, with his parents. He's kind of under their watch for a few, I don't, I never know the timeline, but <laughs> a little while they're under his watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's kind of talking about how it's, he touches on, it's like semi-miraculous. Like I have been sharing needles and I've been, you know, with these people who have gotten sick and I somehow am not, I do not have HIV. And, it, mm-hmm. and then he goes almost immediately on to be like, but I'm so bored and I just want to kill myself. Like basically like within minutes, it's like, I, yeah. I just, I miss it. Um, this, this kind of dodging a bullet doesn't make me want to use any less. Um, and I'm done this horrible withdrawal. I've made it through. And like, my only thought can be how boring and awful life is now. Like I just can't fucking do it. Yeah. Which I think is, again, he needs to feel um, not necessarily othered, but like he's going through, the most to justify i think how he's fucked himself and his family and other people over sometimes just for gain outside of even addiction right he uh, that scene is uh, immediately followed by him going to visit tommy after we find out for the first time that he uh has you know been diagnosed yes. and, and is hiv positive and there is uh there's such a resentment from Tommy, you can feel, you know, when yes. he kind of asks him, like, did you take the chat? Did you take the test? And, you know, you can, and he says he came up negative and he just sort of says, oh, lucky you, you know? Yes. <laughs> um, and Renton isn't aware of any of this. He's playing like football on his wall and kind of, it feels like he's not understanding the gravity of the situation, perhaps in his delusion, but he kind of chats with Tommy and then is like, feel better and heads out. Yeah, there's really nothing that he's able to do. He doesn't have the capacity for any sort of uh, emotional response to anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I really love the the little detail. Um, it's it's very uh, brief, but when he goes to get tested for HIV and the nurse puts the needle in, he says "ouch" and like reacts to her to getting stabbed by the needle. And it's you know yes. the, the the irony of of him. Uh, reacting and and feeling some sort of like antagonism towards this person for stabbing him when he spends most of his waking yes. life doing so is is pretty funny to me. Yes, and I'd love to after 
uh, when he, well, not love, but when he has his overdose and he kind of goes to the hospital and he has this really like red, raw, awful looking arm because I think of the amount he's injected. Um, and I, I'm struck by the fact I'm not really icked out by any of the, the injection in the movies. I know for some people that's like the worst thing ever to watch in the world, but I'm not icked out by needles. But something about that kind of sliding in of like the really clinical sterile needle in the hospital into his really red raw arm is like the grossest part for me. And I find it interesting. I don't think it's purposeful, but the, these kind of two moments of response and pain and kind of mm-hmm. his, 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 him at his like gnarliest physically uh, in react in response to his drug usage is kind of in this like clinical sterile hospitalized space instead of where you would expect it to be, which is mother superiors, like dingy, nasty den. Yeah. That uh, moment is, is really striking to me. Re- really the, the overdose sequence is uh, I-, I think one of those ones that is, is maybe one of the most memorable moments in the movie. It's set to uh, Lou Reed's perfect day. Uh, again, an awesome little uh, music drop, little needle drop there for mm-hmm. us. Uh, what I also love about this is that at a certain point earlier in the film, uh, Sick Boy, when relaying his unifying theory of life, mentions uh, that Iggy Pop and Lou Reed are both examples of people who have had it and then lost it, uh, and then said that his solo stuff is is not nearly as good as anything he ever did with the underground. Uh, and then they <laughs> soundtrack this moment where where uh, where Renton is at his his rock bottom with a Lou Reed track. It has a nice kind of symmetry to it. Yes, and um, I do love the kind of this unifying thread throughout this film of. Um, Iggy Pop is so fascinating to me yes. and I'm not massively into Iggy Pop, but it is like a marker of conflicts for a lot of people. That huge, amazing subtitled argument that is kind of being relayed between Tommy and Spud and Gail. And I don't remember Tommy's girlfriend's name, something like uh, Lizzie, I think like. is her Lizzie. name. Lizzie. Yes. Yeah. Um, and they're all kind of relaying these two arguments at the same time over this forgotten birthday in this Iggy Pop concert. Um, and the idea that the Iggy Pop concert is going to win out over potentially losing your girlfriend over something is fantastic. And then Iggy Pop comes up <laughs> again um, when Renton and Diane meet for the second time. And she comes over and she calls him Ziggy Pop. Um, yes. <laughs> and I think says she he's dead. Um, like she thinks he's so old and outdated. Um, and it's this strange sandwiching of like Renton sort of feeling his age for maybe the first time ever. Um, in the midst of his like his friend group's most recent memory of Iggy Pop is like this it, this useful destruction of their relationships because they still think it's more important than their partners to go see Iggy Pop live. I mean, that's also maybe we should talk about uh, that that Ziggy Pop moment when he mentions you know Tommy yeah. just saw him live last year <laughs> on his girlfriend's birthday. He he uh, leaves out. Uh, he's telling that to uh, Kelly McDonald's character Diane, who we think is of legal age and that he met at a club and is going home to bed now, uh, which we find out very quickly the next morning. Uh, she's actually still in primary school. <laughs> she's like 15 years old. Yeah. Uh, is it primary school, high school? I don't remember which one I that is. I can't remember. It's secondary. Uh, I think. Secondary. That is what it is. Secondary, not primary school. That would be. Uh, that would be uh, really, really nice. shocking. <laughs> uh, she's, in, she's in secondary school. Excuse me, folks. She's not, uh, she's not that young. She is she's way too 15, young. 15, probably, though. F- 15. <laughs> they don't say, but it's super illegal, which makes me think. Because I think 16 was probably age of consent in the UK and in, uh, by the 90s. But So she's yeah. 15. And, but I think that Diane is kind of a... 
an example of what train spotting does so well as a whole, where it just kind of lets this ethically sticky situation sit. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't try to brush over it, but it doesn't try to suggest that there is a fixable, nice answer either. Like, it does not put the onus on her because I guess technically Diane tricked, if such a thing can be done by a 15-year-old girl, right. Renton, and pre- <laughs> made herself seem presumably of age, uh, or at least to old enough to be out drinking. Um, but then very confidently reveals she isn't by coming out in her high school uniform and, like, asking him to walk her to school in front of her parents. Apparently, like, thinks that'll go over fine. Um, and then threatens to call the police on him if he stops seeing her. Um, but I find even in that, a lot of films kind of handling that wouldn't even kind of bring bring the legal issue into it or the ethical issue into it. It would just mm-hmm. be like, well, these people do shocking things. So this is another one and like add it to the to the mess. But it doesn't feel that way. Like there is a discomfort that I appreciate them acknowledging because that is a gnarly little move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and in, you know, another way, I think that the relationship with Diane is meant to exemplify how infantile Renton is. Uh, We first see him when he's in the club and is on this sort of impossibly horny pursuit. He has mentioned that uh, kicking heroin has increased his libido, uh, which has been basically non-existent while he's been using the smack and uh, is pursuing women left and right in the club, looking for anyone who will pay attention to him. And he is taken with Diane specifically because of the way that she rejects another guy at the at the club. And when he pursues her, mentions to her that he is smitten because of how maturely uh, she handled a situation. <laughs> and it's just funny to think about him, you know, praising this little teenager uh, for her depth and for her maturity. We know he's kind of obviously putting on airs and bullshitting at this point to try to get laid. Uh, but it is really funny that in that moment, too, we see him kind of outclassed and and, uh, you know, outwitted by a young girl. Um, and to him, that is like that's par for the course. Right. That it's just there to kind of showcase she's operating on a much different and higher wavelength than Renton can be. Well, yeah. And she she dresses him down, but not even particularly skillfully. She kind of is just like, you're going to use all of these lines to try and pick me up. Mm-hmm. And he is just so smitten over it like it's the smartest thing he's ever heard um and it you know when you find out she is as young as she is um I was so startled on first watch so startled but I also it makes sense for all of her actions and even her kind of her biggest move she has on him or biggest thing she has holding over on him is that she's going to call the police Mm -hmm. which in and of itself is kind of this like insane concept and only so scary to Renton because he's already been in so much trouble that this could actually be the thing to throw him in prison and then get him killed or get his balls cut off or whatever he said he was scared of. And again, it's only that idea of this like punishment that actually freaks him out about it. It's not actually at all the ethical ickiness of the fact that she's 10 years younger than him, probably at 15 years old. Excuse me, excuse me, I don't mean to rush you, I was very impressed with the capable and stylish manner which you dealt with that situation. And I was thinking to myself, now this girl's special. Thanks. What's your name? Diane. Where are you going, Diane? I'm going home. What was that? It's where I live. Great. What? 
Well, I'll come back with you if you like, but like, I'm not promising anything, you know? Do you find that this approach usually works? Or let me guess, you've never tried it before? In fact, you don't normally approach girls, am I right? The truth is that you're a quiet, sensitive type, but if I'm prepared to take a chance, I might just get to know the inner you. Witty, adventurous, passionate, loving, loyal. Taxi! A little bit crazy, a little bit bad, but hey, don't us girls just love that? Hey. Well, what's wrong, boy? Can't got your tongue. Let's talk a little bit about one more character uh, who we have mentioned a little bit here, uh, and that is Robert Carlyle's Begbie. He's so Um, incredible. He's an incredible performer just in in his own right, uh, in every way. And this character is just uniquely suited to him and his proclivities. Um, He has a way of being so mesmerizing, kind of like weirdly handsome and charismatic while also being a complete psychopath um he uses this to great effect in other movies uh i don't know if you've seen uh the 1999 film ravenous that he stars in opposite guy pierce uh but he is a a literal monster in that Mm -hmm. and um does something very similar where he has this kind of like mesmerizing quality while also hiding a I don't know, just a a venom, a vitriol that's like right there underneath the surface. And when it comes out, it's very terrifying. And uh, I think Begbie exudes that quality throughout. He does. And it's so reliant on, as you said, that little bit of charisma that Robert Carlyle brings, because, uh, because otherwise you would have absolutely no justification for why these people hang out with this man. But you see enough of him and he has enough of a draw that it strangely makes sense that they kind of excuse what he does because even when he's telling that complete bullshit lie of a story at the very beginning when they're at the bar or at the pub um, about how he lost, he won the pool game and everything was great and he actually did terribly and beat the shit out of someone opening their bag of chips too loudly. Um, He's got the, like, they let him have it even though he's full of bullshit because he's telling the story so while everyone at the table is quiet, they're attentive, even the girlfriends are listening because he just, he's oddly pleasant in, like, his extreme psychopathy, overconfidence. Similar similar but different (laughs) to Sick Boy, like a more chaotic version of Sick Boy and, like, he is what he is. And he's almost childlike in his responsiveness. It's not this kind of macho fighting movement it's not skilled whenever he fights is from like this instant wound to ego like a spilled beer and it's the most violent surefire way that he'll win he needs to make sure that he's going to win the fight even though it's usually like scarring somebody mm-hmm. and brutalizing them with like glass um it, it has nothing to do with this yeah with any sort of kind of skill or this idea that he's kind of someone who likes to fight for any other reason but it feels good for people to like bleed around him and he can hold that little bit of power yeah, it's clear, you know, he he in his own way uh, mirrors Renton's kind of moral superiority and the fact that he uh, kind of holds over the rest of the crew that he doesn't use hard drugs, despite the fact that it's very clear that he uh, is an alcoholic uh, and that he is very much addicted to inflicting physical pain and is is a man very much driven by by uh, his impulses <laughs> you know he he sort of kind of randomly winds up committing an armed robbery yeah uh, with with a prop <laughs> gun uh before he comes and lives with renton in the final act of the movie um and i think that you know when he comes and and lives with renton 
it's one of those moments where you understand Renton's justification for letting him squat, uh, which is he's incredibly dangerous and telling him no uh, seems like it would be uh, something handled very poorly. When the rest of the crew starts to show up, when Sick Boy comes in, it it, it feels a little bit less justifiable, but only because... uh, Initially, you know, there's there's really no way out of, of being stuck with Begbie. Once you're in, you're yes. kind of in uh, or you're out on the on the blade of a knife. Absolutely. This sort of high stakes friendship situation where it's for Begbie, it's not about he's a mate. It's about like if we stop being his friends, we're at the most immediate risk. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he like because I, I get the sense he's a bit older, too. So it feels like he just kind of nudged his way in there and then he needs to dominate their entire kind of mo no matter what's going on including putting like he's willing to throw everything away at the very end they get this money and then he starts this fight based off of a small like kind of spilled beer situation and he hurts all of his friends in the process um just because he gets so sort of feral at the at the thought of losing a fight or see me or being embarrassed in front of his friends you're not even totally sure why he does what he does yeah, it really is just kind of an, an impulse and a lack of control. Like he, yeah. <laughs> when you mentioned that he's like clearly older, you made me think that he's sort of like, uh, like a psycho, like Wooderson from Days and Confused. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that that totally. he's just like he's just like totally. the guy who kind of hangs around and has been here forever, and like we don't really know where we met him or how this all started. Yeah. Like we met him at a pub or something, but. Here he is. Here and he, he is. And he's always, group. he's at like all of their functions too, more than everybody else is. Like he's going and playing pool with Tommy Sunday morning with his hangover. He like, that's happening for him. He's decided yeah. that and you have to show up. Yep. <laughs> he also has a moment in the movie. Um, and I think we should talk about it because it's, it's one that I had forgotten about until we uh, watched it this have. last time. Yeah. yeah, of course. It's a scene where he uh, is at a bar with Renton while they're yeah. out on, in, on the town in London. Um, they're both getting very drunk and he picks up a woman um, who it's later revealed is a trans woman um, mm-hmm. that he he sort of discovers uh, while they are sort of uh, mid-coital in, in a vehicle outside the bar. Um, yeah. And he has a very angry, violent reaction to it. It's presented to us with Renton's voiceover where he is sort of kind of making sense of the reaction and saying, like, you know, I don't feel this way. I believe in, you know, kind of a, a fluid genderless, like free love sort of kind of thing. And I believe that that's the way the world is heading, but nobody told Begbie. And I I feel conflicted about this scene a lot because I, I feel like it's an opportunity to show a character at his most disturbing and most sort of uh, myopic and and vicious towards another Mm -hmm. person while also trying to validate it by giving us an opposing perspective in a voiceover, despite, you know, we, we don't really know this about Rent, and it kind of seems like him almost trying to smooth things over yet again, you know, in the same way that we say, like, oh, he's a mate. Uh, it, it kind of feels like it's offering that justification for the acceptance of this particular moment within the film. Yeah, I never totally know what to make of that whole moment. I would say Renton, his, something always strikes me about his speech. Like his dream is that there's not going to be, it's not even about sexuality, but more about there's not going to be men and women. We're all just going to be wankers is what he says in like a hundred years time or whatever it is. Um, But I don't necessarily feel, well, I think that is a, I like that they have even 
for the era it's in and the culture it's in that they have even a suggestion of a kind of slightly more open-minded, genderless uh, kind of fluidity idea. I can't help but feel that, especially the way it's shot, where they're kind of in this car and Begbie reaches down and he's trying kind of angle, like potentially fingering her or something, and it kind of like moves against unexpected genitalia for him, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like a penis. Um, I always feel like that is supposed to be like a little bit of a gag, especially when they talk after and Renton very clearly jokingly says, you don't know, maybe it would have been great. Um, Mm -hmm. Which I don't know if you would necessarily kind of make that joke if you really felt like you were so open to this kind of gender fluidity idea. Um, I just don't totally know what to make of that scene, especially in relation with the way other women are portrayed in the film. I've never been totally sure about that part. Yeah, it it feels complicated. I, I, I will give it that, as you said, you know, it has a little bit more of a kind of uh, progressive guiding sort of voice, literally in voiceover mm-hmm. uh, for, for 1996. You know, it's not um, like the last seduction or anything like that in yeah. terms of it's like uh, politics around, around uh, trans women or anything. But uh, it, it does feel like it's played for a gag. It's meant to kind of get one over on Begbie. And like within the context of the movie, we're supposed to kind of laugh at his expense a little bit. Yeah. And, and to me that, yeah. that makes it uh kind of difficult and and one of the things that while I very rarely say things age poorly on this show despite the era that we talked about <laughs> yeah. I, I think that is one that certainly has uh has aged poorly I think because everything else is so thoughtful kind of like what we touched on before where like there's this a lot of stuff like notions of addiction and agency notions of you know Diane and that really sticky age gap um the the concept even of like baby dawn and of of sex and all of this kind of stuff is really hiv i think is touched on quite well and thoughtfully and kind of threaded Mm -hmm. in without being heavy-handed um that this one yeah it just kind of feels like it stands out as like well i know it's not as thoughtfully done because i'm always so struck by how well they handle other complicated topics with a light but meaningful hand so we talked a little bit about this movie you know kind of managing its its tone that it has, you know, a a very kind of energetic, very funny, playful kind of quality to it. Um, but that it also is very dire sometimes without ever like kind of totally like cooling over into something that's just like brutal and horrific. Um, but it does have a couple of scenes that are, are pretty noteworthy. As I mentioned at the beginning, kind of like, you know, trials by fire for, for maybe young moviegoers. And I think the one that stands out to people the most, one of the most memorable is that baby Dawn uh, sequence where uh, the the crew awake at Mother Superior's place to Allison screaming. Uh, Renton has mentioned that Allison, who is sort of sick boy's girlfriend, but also we we recognize that like the the parameters and boundaries of their relationship are are pretty loose. You know, they even kind of mentioned that uh, up until that moment, they didn't really know uh, who who Dawn's father might yeah. be. Um, but, but Renton mentions that Allison may have been screaming for days. No one could know because they were in this sort of, uh, heroin induced stupor and they all enter the baby's room and the baby is sitting there in the crib dead, clearly kind of like emaciated and neglected. Uh, it's, I will say when you watch it clearly a, a doll like but but it is still extremely graphic and uh, and shocking for a movie that up to that point has not really peddled in 
any of those moments that are meant to like really, really disturb you. It's it's a, an interesting kind of punctuation point. Yes. And I always appreciate that the baby Dawn doesn't die by some horrific accident. Um, she just dies because of what Renton kind of lays out in the beginning, which is like, we don't make decisions and we don't act on things because we've chosen heroin. Um, and that includes losing days at a time, which is your own personal choice. But ultimately, like this baby suffered from it, too. Like there are outcomes like there have to be from from just like kind of like losing time like this um and i that scene when sick boy's kind of crying over uh baby don and he asks renton says i feel like i should say something and then sick boy says say something um is maybe one of the only moments in the film where you feel like all of their bond has like an emotional use like it's always so sort of um transactional and just by by association of being kind of these these outsiders, um, but sick boy now like suddenly needs what friends are actually for, which is like support and care um, and something. And there is no solution and nothing to be said. Like this is probably the first time that there is really nothing to offer, even comfort wise. Um, and the first time they're really out of their element. I think that they feel like there's like an actual adult consequence when before it was just like we're so lucky we just kind of get on and off based on uh, a whim or wanting to prove something to somebody. And like, there are actually stakes. It's also one of those moments too, that I think, you know, kind of exemplifies the, the sort of monotony of the heroin use itself, right? There is, uh, you know, in, in my own experiences with addiction, I, I've heard and, and have often echoed the sentiment that using was just a byproduct of existing, that it is, you know, yeah. something you do when, uh, when the stock market is up and something that you do when the stock market crashes, right? Like it is mm -hmm. something you do in moments of pure elation and something you do at the moments where you were at your lowest lows. And that moment where sick boy uh, is, is begging for Renton to say something, to, to provide yeah. some sort of kind of moral comfort, his response is, I'm going to go cook up. And that to me is, is I think the most brutal moment in the entire movie where like, you know, it's, it's, uh, two characters who have a very sort of topical friendship, you know, a friendship of sort of circumstances because of their addiction. One of them looking for relief, for comfort, for reassurance in one of his darkest moments, and the other one not having anything to offer besides saying, "We can, we can uh, numb all this the same way we've numbed everything else up to this yeah, point." The same way we spent the exact two days. Like that is our not even solution, but that's how we're going to survive this. And then. What always strikes me too is that um, Allison comes in and says, you know, will you cook for me? And Renton, you know, gets going and he says, of course I will, but not before. I don't remember the exact wording, but I'm going to get the first hit. Mm -hmm. As if like he he requires it. And that I think sums up like he's not some selfish, evil person in this moment, but he is an addict and the goal is always to score and he is going to do it first even though this woman literally just lost her child like 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 and is yeah. like looking for this relief but it's like but there is this hierarchy in your brain just based off of chemicals like how your brain is functioning under addiction yeah the film also has a weird uh i don't want to say obsession but it does have a interesting kind of preoccupation with scatological moments and humor mm -hmm. in the film um, one of the other scenes that I, I found myself 
profoundly repelled by this time uh, is the worst toilet in Scotland that comes up on a on an inner title um, when uh, just the the circumstances around it too are just completely putrid uh, and and it really you know kind of sets this template of just like what kind of movie we're in for so Renton has decided he's going to do the sick boy method he's going to quit and boot the thing cold turkey by locking himself away with cans of cold soup and milk of magnesia and all this stuff uh, and he needs one more hit to just kind of christen the thing and say I'm out so he goes and visits uh, a local dealer kind of a shoddy guy played in the movie uh, in a cameo by Irvin Welsh and uh, he doesn't have any heroin for him, but what he does have is two opium suppositories that he can stick uh, directly up his ass that are slow release that will give him a nice, easy high. Already gross. We see uh, Renton kind of just, you know, shoot him up there like while he's talking <laughs> with the dealer. Uh, and then, of course, uh, he uh, mentions that heroin makes you constipated. And the fact that he's been off heroin for a handful of days has made him not constipated. So he immediately seeks out a toilet uh, only to uh, relieve himself, but also drop the suppositories. Uh, then we see uh, a scene that is, I think, prettied up for our purposes uh, and, and for the audience to like not completely turn on the movie right away. <laughs> Uh, but we, we see Renton start digging around in this disgusting toilet, now also soiled with his his own output, um, which turns into kind of a, a dreamlike sort of swimming scene, this underwater kind of visage where he's diving around in the water. He finds his suppositories on the, on the ocean floor on these rocks. Um, and we kind of lose sense of the fact that like he is really just head first face down right now in uh the dirtiest possible place he could be uh and i also think that the the two kind of big poop scenes in the movie the fact that that's even a trackable thing is ridiculous but that and when spud shits the bed and then it like yes. flies all over uh, his girlfriend <laughs> and his girlfriend's parents and their breakfast um <sighs> are kind of two moments of almost like subject subjectivity POV to me in the sense that there's no way Spud shit that much. And obviously Renton did not actually climb into a toilet and like crawl around in some, on some ocean floor. Mm-hmm. They're tapped into this very visceral feeling of like, that is how it's feeling to these two people in these two exact moments. Yes. And the fact that that's not through some sort of romantic moment or, or doesn't even really happen when they're high. It happens when in this aftermath, when your body is just so unwell, it's giving out on you. And that something like even quitting well-intentioned only brings you back to your most kind of base bodily human needs. And life does kind of suck outside of doing heroin when you're quitting heroin in the sense that the two big things he feels directly after his first attempt are like having a horrible, nasty experience in a bathroom and like shitting his brains out and then like really having the urge to have sex and no one wanting to have sex with him because of how he appears. And it's a hard life to go back to. Like you're back into your baseline animal survival mode in the gnarliest way possible. And no one is really sympathetic to what you're going through. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point of that subjectivity. I was going to mention next um, uh, a character who we haven't really talked much about, Ewan Bremner um, as Spud. Who apparently played Renton in a stage adaptation of Trainspotting. I read that too. I read that too. Yeah, so he agreed to do the film and, and be Spud. I can't see him as anyone but Spud. I, I, I could not see him in the lead role, but um, I like Ewan Bremner. I know some people are kind of uh, hit or miss on him. Just he's, He has kind of a very 
strange look about him. He's very distinct and and kind of awkward. Um, but but he's magnificent in this movie. The scene where he uh, does a shitty state mandated job interview Ugh. while on speed is one of kind of those like wonderful defining moments of the film. No, I went to Craigie, Craig Newton. I just put it down to Royal Edinburgh College to help get the job. There's too much discrimination in this town, man, because they're both schools, right? And we're all in this together. And I wanted to put across the general idea rather than the details. Like, people get all hung up on details. Like, which school did I go to? How many organs did I get? Could be like six, could be none. It's not important. What is important is that I am, yes? Mr. Murphy, do you mean that you lied on your application? No. Well, yeah, oh, yes, only to get my foot in the door. Sure, no, that's just having that like. But you were referred here by the Department of Employment. There was no need for you to get your foot in the door, as you put it. Yeah, hey, cool. Whatever you say, man. Sorry, you're the man, the dude in the chair. I am merely here. Like, well, obviously, I'm here, like, but. Mr. Murphy, what exactly attracts you to the leisure industry? And a what? Pleasure. It's like my pleasure and other people's pleasure. Do you see yourself as having any weaknesses? Oh, yes, because, like, I'm a bit of a perfectionist, actually. Yes, I am. See, for me, it's got to be the best or it's nothing at all. Like, things get a bit dodgy. I just cannot be bothered. But, hey, I get good vibes about this interview thing today, though, man. Seems to me like it's going pretty well, eh? It's my favourite. I think maybe my favourite part in the movie. It's so gorgeously executed. I love the space they're in. It's like the saddest room you've ever been in. <laughs> like it's so much sadder than everything else you've seen so far. There's this pathetic island like palm tree painting on the yes. wall to kind of because they're in the leisure industry. And the idea that this man who is just getting by and is hacking trying to hack the system enough to be to keep getting they call it government dole but not uh, get a job ever um has to like sit in here and pretend he would care about selling vacation packages to people when he can't even like afford living <laughs> is so absurd and again i think kind of that capitalistic dream that like of course spud is sitting in there fucking around because it's like all of this stuff is so out of reach for him why would he ever want to partake in that um and he he pitches that he's a perfectionist which i just think is the funniest thing on earth that that's his weakness that he needs to do yeah something perfectly or not do it at all and then he kisses the woman's hand on the way out as a way of goodbye like just the fact that they have this kind of script in place that they've all picked up these practices from each other to ensure that they can keep kind of getting by the way they're getting by on this welfare system is fantastic it's so funny it's it's chef's kiss and you know the the idea that this person whose entire existence is uh seeking out their own like bodily pleasures answering this question of like what draws you to the leisure industry with uh <laughs> namely my pleasure at other people's pleasure uh is just it, it's pitch perfect it's it's some of the best writing in the movie for sure and uh and bremner delivers it like like a scotsman on speed um oh, it's, <laughs> it's brilliant his his commitment to just that incredible almost indiscernible speed of delivery of his lines where it's like you might not get it all which i didn't for like my first three watches you do not yeah. know what that guy is saying he is firing through things but that commitment to this idea that he's super super high and really doesn't want this job <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, he he gets some good moments there. Uh, that his poop scene is uh, arguably grosser than the toilet scene for sure. Um, it's weird yeah. that we we have like multiple poop scenes, as you said. Like, oh, you know the the two poop scenes in this the two big movie. poop scenes. Yeah, and I <laughs> but I also like I find him to be the comic relief doesn't feel like the right word, but that is kind of his purpose in the sense that he doesn't really have a defining life structure. I wouldn't say not in the way that Sick Boy or Begbie commit or in the way that uh, Renton has this kind of idea of maybe becoming a better person down the road. Spud doesn't really seem to have thought about those things. I don't think he's really thought about tomorrow in a lot of senses. Um, But I also find him to be the most tragic character. Like he is Mm. the one that is most targeted by a really stigmatized system and he kind of has the least means and he has these little snippets of being close to normal life like I would say he has the most traditional girlfriend out of everyone like she's this woman who reads Cosmo and is making decisions about her sex life based on that like she's interested in kind of pretending at adulthood with him and she seems to live with her parents but has this fantasy that they're going to potentially work out Um, and so he has these little snippets but he's also like the soonest to be put into jail for the exact same crime that Renton has simply because he Mm -hmm. doesn't really know how to present himself in court um, and he doesn't really seem to have the resources that other people have. And he's the only one out on the streets officially at one point. And I don't know necessarily what's that, what that's supposed to signal, minus the fact that he's just maybe not that bright. Uh, but he, I feel, I feel the worst for Spud the most regularly, which is on purpose, I would assume. I think so, too. And I think it's the reason, uh, as we've already mentioned, you know, at the end, he's the only person besides Renton who gets a cut of the money from their deal. Um, it's sort of to absolve Renton of of his guilt. But also, I think uh, I think the movie is making that decision for us, too, and and kind of pointing to Spud as uh, as the, the 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 most blameless of all of them and the one who suffered the most, maybe absent Tommy. But of course, Tommy mm-hmm. uh, ultimately loses his life in the movie. So. Yeah, I think that the the movie kind of shares that sympathy for Spud uh, mm-hmm. with us as the viewers, and and yeah, he is kind of tragic because he is the one who also kind of has uh, the the closest thing to a similar upbringing to Mark. We see his mother at one point after the trial and realize that you know of all of these other characters, he's the only one who may have something resembling like a family that cares about him and that he spends any sort of dedicated time with. And this struck me this time is that this this idea that he has a similar life to Renton and ends up in the spot that one time that they see his mother, Begbie like tears into her. Yeah. And I never totally know what to make of that minus Begbie feeling some guilt or again, that kind of just reactive anger. He doesn't like that his friend has lost in any way. And so he feels the need to blame somebody. But there really is never any pointing at fingers of parents in the film, except for Begbie totally unjustifiably saying like, you shouldn't have raised your son this way to end up in jail, even though they're in the exact same boat. Yeah. I mean, in that moment, I think he's kind of reflecting sort of that very nineties mentality of a lot of people uh, Mm -hmm. around addiction and around like heroin use specifically uh, that it's a moral failing, right. And not just a moral failing of the person, but a moral failing of their environment that, uh, you know, that lovely, you know, Bush quail uh, conversation about family values deteriorating that uh, that wind up being the, res- the the thing that results in addiction and criminality and all of these other uh, things that people could get themselves into that are really just, you know, responses to 
the alienation of of the moment and and of the society that we live in. Uh, and I and I think that Begbie sees Mark as having succeeded where Spud has failed because he has parents who have taken care of him and have taught him how to present himself and carry himself and lie to a judge to make it seem like he's interested in some level of reform. Yes. And I think that's such a great point. I haven't actually thought of it that way, but I think it's so true. And I think Mark is the sneakier user of all the users. And I think that appeals probably to Begbie and the family values, conservative bullshit ideals that he kind of parrots is like, I don't have to see it. And I don't even know what it would look like. So the fact that even Mark, I think, excuses himself from that exact lunch or whatever it is to go shoot up is simply like not the problem because it's less visible whereas spud can't control that and even though he's the one with the most government intervention he's also the one that ends up homeless and out on the street which i always find sad and accurate that it it is a punitive system not one about healing anything at all yeah absolutely and it's one that i mean we see ultimately you know there's there's this perspective that the movie shares in some ways that uh, that there is a sort of like a bootstraps quality to it, where if you work hard enough, you will pull yourself out of this detriment. But we see that that's not really the case too. You know, it kind of undercuts its own message. And I, I can't tell if it's one that's maybe shared by, by Hodge or Boyle in some capacity or not, but there's, there's kind of a, a blurring of that line about how, how deep down that rabbit hole, the filmmaker and the writer go in terms of believing that there is some sort of quality, some moral quality, some sort of like workman-like quality that can lift you up out of the dredges of society. Yeah, and I never know where it settles on that too, because the actual structure of the film points to one outcome, which is that that simply is not true with the resources we currently have, where you can't just suck it up and quit because no one in the movie successfully does it yeah ever (laughs) but on the flip side it does kind of suggest that messaging of like well mark is the best off when he does have that job and he is the best off when he uh is sober and he had to go and look for those things himself which is true but you can't help but figure the way you know all of his health resources and the government keep failing him that i don't know how that you would make that movie with the points that it's making and not feel like well maybe if there were a few more resources, he would be better off instead of this kind of half-hearted, like he gets his handful of methadone that he says isn't working for him. And then they're like, well, I guess it's cold turkey. Like there's this huge kind of, there's no middle ground from like the government responses and just familial responses that aren't just suck it up. And yet the movie still sometimes I feel like maybe suggests that that's the reasonable outcome, which I don't agree with. Mm -hmm. Nor I. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the legacy of this movie. Uh, We've already mentioned that it has spawned a sequel that was released uh, nigh 20 years later uh, based on another Irvin Welsh novel called Porno, um, which is itself a sequel to Train Spotting. During the era that it was released, though, it was also finding success um, and also being targeted by some of these kind of like family groups and conservative politicians. Uh, really worldwide. Um, in fact, uh, if I remember correctly, Bob Dole during yes. the 96 presidential campaign had quite a bit to say about the movie and uh, it glorifying drugs and representing sort of moral degeneracy. Um, and I think he is also someone like the UK politicians who mentioned well after the fact uh, that he had not seen the film. Which is so, I just don't understand well, I do. I do understand people talk out of their asses all the time. And I especially kind of like conservative pundits who are going to focus on 
media aren't actually consuming the things they're talking about. That's like been proven time and time again. But um, but I feel especially kind of that American pushback and vitriol against it is particularly interesting to me because it also feels so culturally aligned with kind of UK ideology and Scottish ideology that there's a bit of a, of a cultural gap there, I would say, to assume that watching this movie, if you're some kid in 1996 living in the US, that you're going to want to pursue the life that they have or want to try the drugs that they're having. It, it kind of feels worlds away to me in that sense. Yeah, there's I mean, there's it's not it's not quite the same thing. Uh, and yet to, you know, a conservative politician or to uh, a evangelical group, it's all the same thing. Right. Anything that shows uh, this as anything other than those PSAs that Boyle and Hodge were trying to avoid uh, will feel like it's it's glorifying it in some way. Absolutely. And I think especially in the case of Trainspotting, if they were to watch it, even though a lot of the film inadvertently or not messages that kind of some of the state sanctioned government sanctioned resources uh, kind of fail the people involved. It certainly behooves the government to not pay attention to that either because there are even less resources in America for these, for these issues. Like there are even like methadone clinics are relatively sparse compared to in the UK. And, and, and the idea that you can kind of even choose jailer rehab when it's often some horrible mixture of both in the worst possible punitive way here. Uh, there are huge gaps in that that I think it probably you wouldn't want to look too closely at train spotting even from a harm reduction or a like non drug using perspective because it would seem even better than here and it's pretty abysmal. <laughs> and it's I mean you know the the kind of undercurrent and reality of all of it is sort of that uh, a lot of those uh, areas in which social safety nets and and rehabilitative processes were gutted were during that kind of Reagan Thatcher era uh, where, you know, a lot of these things were cut. I think at one point in the film, uh, Renton even says there is no society, which is a very famous kind of Thatcherism, you know, of this sort of like uh, individualism, this kind of like uh, rugged quality of of a, a singular kind of person who doesn't have a society around them to function, just that it is you and your own moral failings or your moral turpitude and and things that you can do to better yourself and enhance this sort of individuating kind of quality of neoliberalism. Um, it, it's all over this movie. Um, and a lot of that feels, interestingly, like that perspective is an American import now completely internalized by youth culture within Scotland. Absolutely. I, that's so interesting. I haven't even thought of it that way. Yeah, absolutely. I have nothing to add to that. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the other lasting legacies of this film is, of course, the music in it, which we've mentioned a couple times. It's soundtrack or soundtracks, I believe. I think there's actually two often considered one of the best of the 1990s cut into a couple of distinct sort of musical modes. You have the kind of 70s Brit rock. You've got the Iggy Pop. You've got the Lou Reed. You've got a little bit of Brian Eno in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have like the 90s Britpop. We've got Pulp and Blur uh, and then all of these kind of like trancey house like UK dance tracks as well. Uh, and it all on paper and even when you kind of listen to the to the soundtrack, realize like it, w- without the context of the movie, it feels very kind of schizophrenic. Um, but But it's perfect. Like there are so many brilliant moments that I can't separate from their their musical accompaniment that uh it's it's very very powerful stuff 
in terms of filmmaking. Yeah, well, that very the, that lust for life opening is like so like that immediate needle drop that is that matches with his foot hitting the ground is like an instant tone indicator without even trying. It's it's incredible. But I I outside of that, I do think that they do a really great job kind of kind of creating these diegetic spaces, especially for that kind of housey UK beat mm-hmm. kind of stuff at the beginning, kind of when they're in their clubs or partying together. And then they do this fantastic job of really threading it into very domestic and like their more difficult moments, like that kind of house beat that plays through um, or that, I don't, I don't even know. It's like a kind of club beat that plays through Renton's withdrawal mm-hmm. of this kind of like this life before molding into half-heartedly into something else. But there's always this kind of undercurrent of intensity that comes from this very giddy music instead of something tragic or frenetic or over the top or or distracting. There's another kind of interesting quality to it too that I think goes into this sort of corroding of the concept of like society or any sort of uh you know kind of government collectivist project which is that it kind of erases a lot of the musical moments from after the 1970s like the last time that the UK was like quote unquote cool you know like yeah. as it kind of as it kind of becomes this very sort of tight knit like laced up kind of thatcherite economy uh we lose some of that sensibility of the like the hipness of of you know like 60s and 70s UK kind of like brit pop culture and this movie feels like uh, it is coming into its own in sort of its expressions of art in the 90s, but also still really tied to and holding on to that last, those like remnants of of uh, of UK coolness, you know, not just in like the Connery obsession, but in the music too. Yes. And, and trying to kind of bring it forcefully to their forefront and their experience, because everywhere that they kind of hang out doesn't seem particularly hip and cool and even the clubs and the pubs that they're in often are loaded with like older people they're clearly not in like a super vibrant part of town when they're hanging out their clubs are often pretty sparse they're not like loaded with people and their options aren't great uh and but there's often that kind of backtrack of this like different time of when when it meant something to kind of have this cool vibrant scene in the uk and this kind of forceful recreation is often gross and gritty and a little bit empty and a little Mm -hmm. bit bland and they feel that, I think, the group, and Renton especially, feels that he can't kind of create the life he seems to be pursuing if he's choosing outsiderness and it's supposed to be so fun and vibrant and open and, and he's actually bored and sad and not getting laid and, and not having that much fun doing what he used to do. Really, the last thing I want to talk about is, I, I guess, more just like a question that we can posit, which is, is this a good drug movie Um, we've already kind of talked about it a little bit and and i i am curious what your thoughts are because i go back and forth on this question quite often about if it's a good like in the canon of movies about using and addiction is it a is it a good one does it feel authentic that's tough i don't know if i ever think of it i've said it's a few a few times i've said a few times here that i i've described it as a drug movie but i never really do outside of needing to give it a label, I'm going to say maybe it's not. It feels different, (laughs) (laughs) which is so funny because I love it so much. I don't really, there's not really a lot of scenes that I feel like are about the actual experience, the tangible experience of being high necessarily. There's a lot of using, but I don't know if I would say it's a drug movie. Yeah, it's a question, like I said, I go back and forth on a lot. I would actually, I think I'd actually agree with you. I would say that it's probably 
it the reasons that it fails as a drug movie to me are the reasons that I find it fascinating because it feels like a movie about drug use that is made by uh, people who carry a, despite what Danny Boyle says, uh, carry or or have sort of been uh, brought up in a society that is very judgmental about drug use. Yes. And in, in a 90s perspective that has really sort of kind of calcified as this society that that views drug use that views uses that views drug users as inherently bad as sort of like people who are uh, outside of society who are robbed of their humanity i think it it tries to imbue its characters with more depth it tries to make them lovable and on, on a lot of fronts i think it succeeds at being a good character study but yeah i, I think that there are still things about it that feel very definitively lensed by a culture that does not see drug users and drug use as anything other than a moral failing. I think so too. I think this has really come to light in what we've talked about today, but it does posit these as extremely different people. Like it does, like even at the end, Renton says something along the lines of at the end of his list, I'm going to be like you, which is like, Mm -hmm. I'll be normal. And again, it's this presumption that there are normal people watching this as if like not the vast majority of us don't struggle with (laughs) addiction or at least not fitting into some myth of capitalism and nuclear family. I will qualify my statements uh, at the risk of uh, listeners being mad at me about saying this isn't a good drug movie. I don't think there are very many good drug movies. Oh, I don't. That's I would like to. I would like to put that on the record too. I don't watch very many drug movies, quote unquote, and I don't dig a lot of them. So that's yes, that's the other I, thing like, I'd like it, to say. Make more good drug movies is all I'll say. Yeah, what's up with that? I feel like you either get like the like this kind of, and I'm not against these in theory, but they often tend to not be very realistic or very meaningful to me in the sense that it's either these kind of like surreal attempts to kind of encapsulate the experience or so tragic and heavy handed and grim that it's just so miserable to watch uh, that it it feels like there is more to addiction and the understanding of using drugs than what they're presenting. There's an anecdote that apparently uh, Ewan McGregor briefly considered uh, trying heroin in order to like really get into the role, which he later decided against. I think that's a good move. Um, I'm not going to encourage anyone who wants to write authentic or, or portray authentic drug use uh, to go out and, and get themselves addicted to anything. <laughs> I also think it's so weirdly like self-centered to be like my one use of heroin will give me more understanding than like just speaking to some addicts. Like, w- would that not be way more meaningful? Like what, what, what insight would that offer you? Even the idea that he was considering it, I found to be such like a acting eye roll. Like, yeah, yeah. it's, uh, it's one of those, you know, we, we sometimes slander the idea of method acting. And in that sense, I'm like, I don't know that you would necessarily need to, in order to act like you are a drug addict, you and I think people have done it before and can do it again. And I don't think it's, I don't even think that's very empathetic to the plight of addicts to be like well i can just kind of dabble in it and then like oh that's not teaching you anything about addiction no that sounds like a sick boy move frankly yeah it does (laughs) it sounds like you're proving a point to your buddies yeah uh yeah um and with that i think we have come to the end of our conversation about train spotting veronica phillips thank you so very much for joining me and uh, and for talking about this wonderful movie of course, I had so much fun. Uh, Veronica, where can people find you and your work? Uh, they can find, I post most everything I write on Twitter at uh, vnicky, V-N-I-C-K-Y-Y. 
and um, I'm a staff writer over at Film Days, so much, most of my reviewing is over there. Um, but any freelance stuff I do outside of that, I'll post online. And uh, from our end of things, you can follow along with Hit Factory at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, you can also subscribe to the show for biweekly bonus content at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Shout out to our overlords. We call them Linda and Jesse K. And with that, we will catch you all the next time. See ya. <laughs>